My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Governments and companies across the world have made commitments to slash their emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. At the same time, Russia's cutting of gas supplies to Europe has put the issue of energy security at front and centre stage. It looks like a potentially tricky balance. Upping the use of renewables would help countries achieve energy security and meet emissions targets, but it will require trillions of dollars and time to further build out the necessary infrastructure. On the other hand, efforts to plug the immediate gap and achieve energy security in the short term could result in greater use of dirty fossil fuels like coal. So how will this play out? Will the focus on energy security ultimately accelerate or hamper the shift to net zero? If it bolsters the case for a rapid shift to renewables, how can we get the trillions of dollars in investment to the green infrastructure and technology projects that need it? Here to debate these issues is ISDA CEO Scott Omalia. Scott, can you tell us a bit about our guest for this episode? Sure, we'll be joined by Neve Stanton, Group Treasurer at Oil Major BP and an ISDA board member. I'm looking forward to hearing Neve's thoughts on how the focus on energy security is affecting the transition to net zero, as well as how the energy crisis and higher prices have influenced BP's energy mix and business priorities. I'd also like to talk about some of the mechanisms and instruments that could help green infrastructure and technology firms raise the trillions of dollars of capital they need to make a difference. In particular, I'll be discussing with her the future of voluntary carbon markets, as you know, there's been some concern around the integrity and the transparency of this market. So I'd like to get Neve's thoughts on how we can address that. Well, it's a fascinating topic and one that I know is close to your heart, Scott, given your background in energy policy at the US Senate back in the day. So let's get cracking. Neve, welcome to The Swap. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. BP recently reported an underlying replacement cost profit of $27.7 billion in 2022. Can you talk about the drivers of that result? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Scott. I mean, look, 2022 was a remarkable year for many reasons. But as you say, our cup for us up $14.8 billion year on year. That was the result of a few different things. First of all, the price environment, oil and gas prices, refining margins up significantly driven by energy shortages. But also, we were what our CEO, Bernard Looney, likes to call performing while transforming. It was a year of really strong operational and financial delivery. In oil and gas, we had our lowest unit production costs since 2006 and our highest plant reliability on record. We also had an exceptional trading results. We have a world-class trading business, which is differentiated by the flexibility and optionality it creates and its ability to react to market dislocations, obviously, which we saw lots of last year. I think it's also notable that we also invested $16 billion of CapEx last year, $10 billion into today's oil and gas energy system, and $6 billion in a mix of organic and inorganics in low carbon and in our transition growth engines. So a remarkable year for us. You mentioned energy supply. Europe has been very focused on the transition to a more sustainable energy mix, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent cutting of supply of natural gas to Europe and soaring prices have brought the issue of energy security to the fore. What are your thoughts on how energy security influences the energy transition? It's a great question. The BP Energy Outlook, which I know you're a reader of, and we've spoken about that, Scott, but that outlook this year considers the impact of the invasion of Ukraine. 
It doesn't radically alter the nature or shape of the scenarios, but what it does do is it emphasizes the importance of the energy trilemma and the focus on energy security, as you mentioned. We also think it leads to weaker economic growth, and there's the impact of the loss or disruption of Russian oil and gas to consider. Overall, we actually think it accelerates the pace of the energy transition. We expect a shift from reliance on imports to domestic energy sources, and those are mostly renewable or nuclear. And we think it will lead to greater renewables growth and lower demand for oil and gas. I think it also emphasizes the need for an orderly transition from hydrocarbons and that continued investment is needed due to supply shortages and to avoid the kind of price spikes that we saw. And clearly, as mentioned, there's going to be a need for additional gas and LNG to replace the Russian LNG that's come offline. Setting Ukraine specifically aside, but what steps can countries take to ensure that energy supply is secure, affordable and sustainable? And how has that affected BP's business mix and priorities? For example, the level investment in transition initiatives versus oil and gas. You know, what are the implications of this? One of the things that's become clearer than ever over the past couple of years, given all that's happened in the world, the pandemic, the war, the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, is that people want and need their energy to be secure and affordable, as well as low carbon. That's what we call the energy trilemma. And to tackle that, we need two things. One is we need a faster transition, and two is we need an orderly one. So affordable energy keeps flowing where it's needed today. We, as part of our full year results for 2022, announced some evolution of our strategy, and it's with that in mind. So the strategy is designed to help on both of those fronts. We announced that we'd be investing up to $8 billion more than we were planning for a year ago into our transition growth engines by 2030. So we're going to focus on near-term solutions like EV chargers and sustainable aviation fuels that can help people and businesses decarbonize right now. And we also announced up to $8 billion more investment in what we call resilient hydrocarbons, so high-quality oil and gas projects by 2030. Governments around the world are looking to companies like BP to do this. Our priority will be to deliver where we can quickly and at low costs, but in ways that minimize additional emissions and maximize our contribution to energy security and affordability. But I think it's important with these changes that we know that our annual investment in our transition growth engines still hits around 50% of our total investment by 2030. And our oil and gas production still goes down by around 25% by 2030 compared to around 40% previously. We do think that governments need to prioritize climate action. They need to speed up renewable project permits, granting regulatory changes to foster deployment of corporate PPAs. So there's a lot more that still needs to happen. Now, Bloomberg NEF recently reported that energy transition investment reached $1.1 trillion in 2022. That's an increase of 31% versus the previous year in the same level as fossil fuel investment, interestingly enough. However, this is about a third of the level required for the rest of the decade in order to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. What's holding things back? You know, BP's making an investment, but we need clearly much more. And what's needed to drive further investment globally? Yeah, the energy transition requires substantial levels of investment across a wide range of energy value chains. So as you mentioned, you know, we're increasing our investment, our cumulative capex that we're aiming to invest 
is between 55 and 65 billion in our transition growth engines between now and the end of the decade. So that's hydrogen, renewables, convenience, EV, and bio. What needs to happen? Costs need to come down, supportive policies need to be in place, and demand needs to expand outside of Europe and the US. We need to see net zero value chains emerge, opportunities to participate in them being more widespread. We see huge opportunities for a company that's also heading to net zero. We're working with our partners, governments and customers to develop and advocate for lower carbon value chains that can over time become net zero. It's clearly an investment everybody needs to make. Mm -hmm. We just can't expect, you know, just the fossil energy companies or BP or somebody like that. I mean, it is, as you say, governments, consumers, producers, et cetera, to get all of these things right. Now, voluntary carbon markets allow firms to offset those emissions they can't cut now while channeling capital to projects that create credits. The projects must reduce or remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere at the same time generating an alternative source of revenue that could support further growth and development of innovative technologies. How big a role do you think this market can play in the transition to net zero? Yeah, we think this can play a really important role. We believe that both natural and technological emissions reductions and removals are critical to reaching the Paris goals. I would say we don't plan on relying on offsetting to meet our 2030 net zero aims, but we consider it that it makes sense to account for carbon credits directly relating to our businesses. And in terms of the market itself, we believe that voluntary carbon markets can play an important role in addressing global greenhouse gas emissions and meeting those goals of Paris and doing so in a cost-effective manner. In many cases, projects developed in the voluntary carbon market can also play a critical role in deploying capital that helps preserve and enhance biodiversity, for example, and provide economic benefits for local communities. But in order for the voluntary carbon markets to deliver these intended benefits, integrity must be front and center. For this reason, we're supporting a well-designed, high-integrity VCM that continues to build on advances in technologies, methodologies, a new form of governance to maintain and enhance the credibility in helping deliver Paris goals. Yeah, the integrity is super important. It's become clear that doubts over credit quality and environmental value have affected the trust in the VCM market. And this could, of course, hamper the growth. According to Bloomberg, number of offsets purchased last year fell by 4%. And that's a troubling trend. And it's attributed to the fear of reputational risk and companies purchasing potentially low quality credits. They don't want those on their balance sheet. They don't want the reputational damage. Now, as you mentioned, the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Markets has been working on a set of core carbon principles, which will establish standards for firms to identify high quality credits that have permanent, additional, and verifiable impacts on emissions. How important are these initiatives to implement and implement quickly, and what else might be necessary? I mean, Scott, the simple answer is very important. So from our side, we're active in policy advocacy, and we participate in a number of groups, including the Natural Climate Solutions Alliance. And we're currently participating in several initiatives designed to develop and strengthen the quality of the voluntary carbon markets, such as WBCSD and the WF Natural Climate Solutions Alliance, We support the mission of the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market that you mentioned and its core carbon principles. We're also supporting the efforts of the ICVCM to create a threshold for integrity amongst the various carbon offset standards. And we continuously seek to advocate for an improvement in those standards and integrity and compliance markets. 
where we're also active participants. VCM carbon crediting approaches must continuously improve with new science, with updated methodologies and with evolving technological progress. So really important, Scott. Yeah. For our part at ISDA, we're very focused on developing the legal standard definitions for verified carbon credits, making sure we update them consistent with the Integrity Council results. And we are also exploring potential legal and regulatory issues affecting this market to make sure that they're as robust as possible and the threat of greenwashing doesn't taint these markets. How important is it to have a clear and consistent contractual framework that can be used for any carbon standard or registry? You mentioned that BP is a big trading partner as well. How will these markets trade and how will you use them? It's really important to provide clarity to companies on what makes a high quality program and credit. And the market needs to build integrity and consistency to scale up. So we support those core principles and all the efforts to improve the market and the environmental integrity of the VCM. Ultimately, voluntary carbon markets will need some form of regulatory oversight to ensure it grows with integrity and that the VCM market structures are well designed and operating effectively to deliver credible outcomes and claims. So we support efforts by governments to create policy and regulatory frameworks for linkage of carbon markets and the inclusion of carbon credits from voluntary offset standards and compliance schemes. And we support efforts by regulators to ensure that the VCM is protected from fraud, market abuse, market manipulation, and can operate securely and transparently. And we support the efforts of ISDA to create standard legal definitions consistency across the market so that people have a framework under which they can operate. Excellent. Thank you. I'd like to finish by finding out a little bit more about you. You're not from the oil and gas business. How did you start your career and how did you enter this sector? Non-linear career is what I think they call it, Scott. (laughs) I started my career in banking. I spent almost two decades primarily as a FIG capital markets banker at Morgan Stanley. I moved to my current role at BP a little over two years ago. The main reason for moving was the opportunity it presented to be part of the energy transition to actually have impact at scale. If companies like BP don't transition, the world can't. And the treasury role, it allowed me to bring some of the skills that I'd learned on the banking side over and into helping BP achieve its ambition to be net zero by 2050 or sooner. So a big move to a different sector, um, but it's surprising how many of these skills that I learned in my tenure as a banker have been relevant and applicable. And I'm excited about the transition and the opportunity that we have ahead. I suspect some of the skills and tools that you use were risk management and you have it financially, you have it, you know, in physical risk and in the oil and gas sector, as well as the transition to sustainability. So managing that risk has got to be quite a handful. And that's that's kind of where ISDA comes in. We want to make sure derivatives are useful to help those long-term investments. Absolutely. I remind my team constantly, we're all risk managers And we all need to be thinking in that way. We need to understand the risks and we need to understand how we can manage them so that we can capitalize on the opportunities. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining the podcast. You've been a great guest, providing a a little different perspective than most of our financial experienced individuals, but you have both now financial experience and energy transition experience as well. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's been my pleasure.
Scott, we've covered the energy crisis, the transition to net zero and the role of voluntary carbon markets in previous episodes. But these are topics that, for obvious reasons, have continued to make headlines and continue to evolve. And this discussion really proved that point. We could discuss any number of the issues raised during that interview, but I wanted to ask you about the new definitions for verified carbon credits that you mentioned at the end. Can you explain what our intention is here? Yeah, we do think that voluntary carbon markets can play an important role in channeling investment into green technologies and infrastructure. But it's really important that we set the right foundations to build off this. Most importantly, there needs to be trust. Buyers need to be sure that the credits they purchase represent projects that have verifiable impact on emissions reductions or removals. At this point, the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market is developing a set of core carbon principles which are intended to establish standards for firms to identify high-quality credits. We believe that initiatives like these are absolutely critical to the future success of the voluntary carbon market. This needs to go hand-in-hand with a robust legal and regulatory framework, which is where our definitions come in. They essentially provide a standard framework for people to trade verified carbon credits. They've been developed with the flexibility to support trading of credits across carbon standards and registries, bringing greater legal certainty and consistency. Having a single contractual framework will allow firms to trade carbon credits more easily and globally, in turn, enhancing liquidity. Okay, thanks. You can find out more information on the 2022 ISDA Verified Carbon Credit Transaction definitions on the ISDA website. I should also mention that ESG and sustainability will be a key theme at this year's ISDA AGM in Chicago on May 9th to the 11th. If you haven't already, please do book up your ticket at agm.isda.org. We'd love to see you there. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.